I'm sorry for the delay, ladies. We're gonna, we're just waiting for our first speaker to start. She is going to give us a little bit of introduction. Why are we meeting tonight and how important today, tonight is and tomorrow? And why are we trying to share all our turning point stories? So just bear with us. Ladies, I'm sorry that I'm muting everyone. It will be, just be easier once everyone is muted. But if anybody wants to say anything until we're waiting, you could definitely unmute yourself and say it. Shelly, I'm here. Oh, hi. Hi, Nahama. Happy birthday, Shelly. Thank you, Chaya. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now that Rebbe's and Nahama Dina is with us, um, Nahama, I already did Sadaka and the Rebbe's capital. So uh, we're going to start with the introduction for tonight. So Nechama Dina Vixer is a very, very good friend of mine. And she is also, um, I would say, my Mashpia, my Rebetzin, the person who taught me most of the things that I know. And she is also the co-founder of Merkaz do Reivrit uh, Chabad in 845 Eastern Parkway. And she's also an educator in Beis Rivka. So, Nechama, with no further ado, the floor is yours. Okay. So, good evening, ladies, and welcome. My name is Nechama Dina Abichter. Thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, thank you, Shelly, for organizing, advertising, coordinating, and pulling together this beautiful event in honor of today's Tamas. And thank you to the amazing lineup of women in this program for sharing with me the honor of presenting Turning Point, Reflection on Redemptive Moments. Tonight we celebrate the 12th and 13th day of the month of Tammuz, the birthday of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Schneerson, previous Lubavitch Rebbe, and the 12th and 13th of Tammuz are also the days of his release from Soviet prison. For the next few minutes, I'd like to explore together with you the relevance of this historic event, as it is not only a story of the past, but a story that happens to us every day, something very relevant to us right now in the present and surely in the future. There's an expression in Hebrew, when someone does something that has absolutely no purpose, they say you're grinding water. Why would anybody do that? It serves no purpose whatsoever. Don't need to grind water. Well, the story that I'm about to talk about tonight, this war that was being fought definitely seemed like a war that was being fought in vain a cause that would bring no success, no victory. At least that's how it seemed then. The year was 1917 and the Russian Revolution was underway. World War I was being fought. Regimes across Europe were being dismantled. The maps were being redrawn and Russia was no different. During this time of World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution sought to eradicate the czarist regime that had 
ruled in Russia for so many hundreds of years, and they were successful with Lenin taking the head of the Communist Party and creating a new world order for Russia and any country that they would be able to extend their, um, their rulership and leadership on. This was the beginning of Marxism, of communism, of what they saw as or propagated as equality and rights for everybody, um, seeing the working class, taking away everybody's private possessions, and then reallocating it in an equal and even way to everybody. But as we saw, not everyone is equal. Some are more equal than others in this story. In 1924, Lenin dies and Stalin takes over and becomes maybe one of the worst, most evil leaders in the history that we know since the creation of the world. Killing during the years that he ruled from 1924 to 1953, an approximate of 50 million people. His greatest enemy was Jewish people, and specifically those who wanted to upkeep Judaism and Yiddishkeit. He created a special um, faction in his government called the Absexia, whose job was as this group of people were Jewish themselves, their job would be to infiltrate the Jewish community, to find those people who are still observing Tyra still observing mitzvahs and eradicate them from the inside. And that's exactly what they did with great hate and cruelty, with no mercy on anybody. There was one person, 44 years old, living in Leningrad at the time, <clears throat> who decided that he was not going to succumb to this regime. He called together nine other people and held a secret meeting in his apartment. That night, he offered them an opportunity to join him in taking responsibility that Judaism, Yiddishkeit, would never be eradicated, that it would never die, that they would take the responsibility to keep every Jewish institution possible open. For every Jewish school that would be closed, there would be another one established if it needed to be underground. And that's what would happen. Every Jewish, every shul, every community center, every mitzvah, any Jewish uh, yeshiva, rabbis providing services for their community, all of this would be their responsibility. One by one, this man gave his hand to every one of them as an oath being taken, that they are ready to take the responsibility. How far must they fight? How long must they continue this battle till the last drop of blood? 
this was an offer that many would choose to turn down. But these men took the responsibility. They gave their oath. They gave their promise. They gave their word. The entire land of Russia was divided. Each one of these nine people took one part and they set out to find like-minded colleagues who would help them out in this life-threatening endeavor. And there was nothing that would stand in their way. One of these nine men was sent <clears throat> to Kutais, um, that, country, that area had tens, if not more, of mikvahs before the communists came around, but they were all closed down. And they weren't just closed with, um, with locks and bolts. They were filled with earth and sand, and he had to now go back to this country and try and open up mikvahs. What was he going to do? He had a radical idea. He forged a document from the KGB headquarters in Moscow stating that within 24 hours of his arrival, two mikvahs had to be reopened. He figured that until they found out that this was a falsified document, many women would be able to use this mikvah and a new generation of Jewish children would be able to be born. Yes, after a couple months, they found out that it was forged and those mikvahs were closed. But in the meantime, new plans were underway for opening new ones. And this is how life continued in Soviet Russia. Yeshivas were opened. Their teachers were imprisoned. New teachers took their places. There was an army of people who would not give up on any Jewish child on any Jewish town or city, Judaism would prevail. The flame of Yiddishkeit would not die and they would fight it to the bitter end. In 1927, the KGB had had enough. It was the night of the 15th of Sivan, and a group of Yevsektia, this very special unit that was hired to hound and eradicate Yiddishkeit, came down on the apartment of this 44-year-old rabbi, who we know as the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yisuf Yitzhak Schneerson, and arrested him. The initial sentence was to be shot by the firing squad, no questions asked. He was taken to the Shvalerka prison, a prison where there was hardly anyone who came out alive. Anyone who went there knew that there was really no chance of coming back. And yet miracle followed miracle. And in an unbelievable harrowing, difficult and torturous tale that the previous Rebbe himself penned in a, an account, a journal that he wrote of all the events that happened to him in, in prison. At the end of this imprisonment, 
the death sentence was finally changed to 10 years in the gulag with difficult labor. Again, a situation that was nearly impossible to come out alive. Millions were killed and died in these gulags in the war camps out in Siberia. Yet this too was soon changed from 10 years exile to three years. And finally, on the 12th of Tamil tonight, this terrible decree was changed one final time. And the previous Lubavitcher was notified that he would be allowed to leave Soviet prison. And this was not just a personal redemption for him, as he later wrote in a letter. This was a redemption for every Jewish person, for anyone who cared and loved Torah and mitzvot. But more than that, for any person who the only his only connection to Yiddishkeit was the fact that he was called a Jew. This day is a day of celebration for them as well. And I think that tonight we can ask ourselves the question. Won this battle. It's 95 years later. We're gathered here tonight to celebrate the redemption of the previous Rebbe from Soviet prison. And let's reflect for a moment. Won the battle. This battle of Schneerson versus Stalin. Where is Stalin? Where's communism? Where's Marxism? Where's Lenin? We don't know where to find him. On Google, in Wikipedia, we could search him up. But tomorrow night, and perhaps a few hours ago, in Russia, there will be hundreds and hundreds of celebrations in Jewish centers across the country celebrating the redemption of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe from prison. This summer in Russia, there are hundreds of Jewish camps spread across the country. There are hundreds of Jewish schools across Russia with hundreds of thousands of Jewish children being educated with a Torah truth education. The impossible the unimaginable is happening right now. And when we stop to think about it for a moment, this is really something that happens to us every single day. We all have challenges. We all have battles. We all have difficult moments. We all have those times when we tell ourselves, it's just not going to work. And we, we tell them, you know, in my next lifetime, I'll do it. it, it it's not now. I, can, I, I tried. I can't do it. I'm not going to win. I'm not going to prevail. It's too late. It's too difficult. Everything is working against me. I'll take the freedom to say that this is really very much like what the previous rebel was standing up against. Like uh, ants 
a little ant trying to fight a war against a big architect. What are the odds? Is it possible? And the previous rabbi is telling us that we need to look deeper. Yes, superficially, on the outside, it doesn't look like it's possible. It looks like all the odds are against us. But our leaders, our Abayim, have showed us by example that beyond the events that meet our eye, there is an undercurrent, there is something beneath the surface. There's the holiness, there's the goodness, there's the godliness that will always prevail. There's the Tyra and the Mitzvah that are eternal. And there was no way possibly imaginable that the fight of the free the Kareba would see any positive results. Where trees were being knocked down all around him the previous rabbi, maybe not knowing what would become of them, we see those results of those things. Let's ask ourselves if we can take this perspective to our challenges and maybe rethink all of those situations that we as unsurmountable, where there's absolutely no possibility for a positive outcome to the naked eye and tell ourselves, we can follow the path of the previous Rebbe. We can invest in eternity. We can invest in something that's deeper than what meets the eye. We can invest in goodness, in holiness, godliness, in kindness, in those things that last forever. Let's try and tap into that energy, the redemptive energy of eating, and try and plug it in to one situation in our life where we feel it's hopeless and helpless. And let's dig really deep and say with the energy of today, I am going to find a redemptive moment, this challenge. I am going to plant goodness and Hashem will figure out a way. Today is also my birthday. So I'd like to take this opportunity to bless every single one of you and your families with bountiful blessings for everything good in your life, your family's life, health, happiness, success, nachas, of course, shiach now. Thank you. Thank you, Nakama. That was beautiful. Thank you so, so much for this wonderful introduction. Everyone, if you're not muted yet, aside to Rishi, who's going to be speaking next, please mute yourselves. We are, our next speaker is Rishi Deitch, my very, very, very dear friend, the editor-in-chief of the Neshe Chabad newsletter that I'm very fond of. 
and uh, she has a wonderful, beautiful story to share with us. So Rishi, the floor is all yours. Thank you, Shelly. Can you hear me? Thank you, Shelly, very much for inviting me. The Sheikh Abad newsletter has no better friend in the world than you. My talk tonight, it's, it's less than 10 minutes, it's very short, but my talk is on the importance of good editing, but not the way you are expecting. It has nothing to do with punctuation, more to do with dreams, about editing our dreams. When I was a little girl, I had six dreams. Number one, I wanted to be part of an old married couple. I used to collect pictures of old married couples. I thought it was the most beautiful thing to be married for like a really long time. So I wanted that, that was my dream. Then I also had a dream I wanted to have a lot of children. I also had a dream that I wanted to live in Crown Heights because I lived out of Crown Heights and Crown Heights was like, it was utopia, we loved it. And then I had a dream that I was gonna marry a husband who's gonna read books, a lot, a lot of books and we're gonna discuss books all day. Then I had a dream that I would also write a book and then my final dream was that I would one day be the first lady, the president's wife. Now, I'm just gonna go off a second and talk about dreams. Moshe Rabbeinu had two dreams, two. One dream was he wanted to enter Eretz Yisrael. Hashem said, no, can't have that dream. His second dream was he wanted his son to take over the leadership from him. Again, the Abishah said, no, sorry, can't have that dream. So both of his dreams he didn't get. And yet we read in the Tyra that on the day that he passed away, his face was shining, his face was glowing. And the Mepharshim explained that he was still a giver. He was still giving to others, teaching others, even despite not getting his dreams. Now someone else who had dreams, Yosef HaTzadik. He dreamed about the wheat stalks bowing down to the wheat stalk. And he dreamed about the sun, the moon and the stars bowing down to him, basically. <laughs> These were his dreams of, of, of grandeur, of, of royalty. Instead, he ended up in prison for a life on a trumped up charge of which he was innocent. So he was in prison. And yet we learn about, about Yosef, it also says that he was reading people's expressions if they looked worried, if they looked worried. He was trying to help people who were upset this, a man who was in prison for life is worrying about other people's moods? Like it made no sense. So the explanation is that both Moshe Rabbeinu and Yosef HaTzadik, they accepted, they were tzaddikim, they accepted that they had their dreams for themselves, but maybe their dreams weren't Hashem's dreams for them. And so they decided to drop their own dreams and they went with Hashem's dreams for them. Whatever Hashem dreams for me, that's what I'll, that's what I'll have not my own dreams. So back to my six dreams. Um, what I did when I, when I grew up was I, I edited my dreams and I advised everyone to edit their dreams as well. So I edited the one about discussing books with my husband because I, I realized it took me a few months after our wedding to realize that my husband had never read a single English book in his life. Svarim, countless Baruch Hashem, but English books, no. And I, now I actually see the value in that, that's fine. So I dropped, I edited out that one. Now, the one about publishing a book, I edited that one out because I'm too busy working on my magazine to write any books. Uh, the one about the, being a first lady, I edited that out because it took me a few years and I was like, wait a minute, if you wanna be first lady, 
you have to marry someone who wants to be president. Doesn't happen otherwise. I, I edited that out. Um, the one about um, having a lot of children, Baruch Hashem, Hashem gave me that, so I kept that dream. The one about being married a long time, Baruch Hashem, Hashem gave me that, so I kept that dream. The one about living in Crown Heights, Baruch Hashem, the Rebbe told us to live in Crown Heights. We thought we we're going to go on Shlichas. The Rebbe told us to live in Crown Heights, so I kept that dream. Basically, I edited out whichever dreams I didn't, didn't come true, and I only kept the ones that I got. And I suggest that we all edit our dreams and accept what Hashem's dreams are for us more than what our dreams are for her, ourselves. And I learned this the most from Shelly. She has had an unusual life. She was abandoned by her parents as a very small child. You can read about it in the Tamil's issue of the Nishay. It's there. She had dreams too. But when some of them didn't come true, she edited them. And now her dream that, that Hashem has for her and that she's doing is to do the Rebbe's shlichus, because this seems to be Hashem's dream for her right now. Shelly, I still dream for you to have everything. I'm not satisfied with only some, but the way you live your life, accepting the path Hashem put you on and making, making that your dream inspires me every day. I love you and thank you. Rishi, that was beautiful. You made me laugh so much. I love it. <laughs> um, everyone, by the way, I always say to everyone that knows me, but I'm saying it again, the Sheikh Chabad newsletter is the best newsletter ever. And I run around everywhere with these newsletters. They're amazing. The articles are amazing. I find so many inspirational moments from these magazines. So I'm going to send everyone a way that you can subscribe if you haven't subscribed or if I haven't subscribed you yet. Um, Rishi, thank you so much for your time. This was beautiful. So um, I don't want to waste our time. We're going to move on to the next speaker. We're going to go on to Miss Sarah Carmelli, our amazing um, specialist about mikvah, tarata mishpacha, relationships. And she's the kindest person I know. And she agreed to log in tonight and share also um, a turning point story. And she's also a writer. She wrote a lot of books. She wrote, I think, like three books, but I have one of them. And Sarah, you can tell us a little bit about that as well. So with no further ado, Sarah Carmelli, the floor is yours. Let me see where you are. We need to unmute you. Ah, here you are. Hello, can you see me? I can't see me on the screen. Can you see me? No. I, we don't see you, Sarah. We just hear you. Well, what should I? Can you? Uh, can do you, you have? Well, you usually know how to press the camera. Do you have the? Do you see the camera thing? That's it's. There's a line over it. She's not talking to me. Got it. Okay. Oh, I see you. Thank you. Okay. First of all, I'd like to say that Risha, the book that you said you didn't, you wanted to write, actually you helped because you helped me write my book. You edited my book. So that's one uh, dream you had, you did. So one of the books uh, I've edited by you. First of all, tonight I want to wish Mazel Tov to all the people yeah. birthdays. Um, <laughs> my grand, I have a granddaughter Hi, Rachel. She should live and be well. Um, it's her birthday. 
And uh, she's actually, she made me great grandmother a few times, which is very beautiful. I'm very grateful to her. I just wanted to say many years ago when I lived in Italy, when I didn't, didn't even know about the Rebbe. And I remember I babysat one of the Shulkin's children, Mr. Belinov's children, a couple of children, while they went, uh, they came to the States. And when they came back, they gave me a gift. What gift did they give me? The best gift, the memoirs of the Friedrich Rebbe's, uh, the book he wrote, his memoirs. And that was the beginning. It was, it was um, I read it, I think all, all in one night. It was fascinating. I recommend it to everybody to really, to read the mem memoirs, even though we all know his story, but just to read what he wrote, it was amazing. Um, I was in Russia two times, actually. I was invited to go and speak over there. And actually I was taken to where the Friedrich Weber's house was, and it still exists over there. We go to see it. And I'll never forget the feeling I had when I went there because I was in awe, freezing cold. I mean, you can't even describe, the, it, wasn't, it wasn't Siberia, it was freezing cold. And I was thinking all the challenges he went through, we can't even, we can't even fathom, how did he go through that? So it really gave me chizuk to know that whatever he went through, we're not, we're not the Rebbe, but he guided us and he broke the ice for us. We should know also how to just go ahead despite challenges. My challenges was, I'm sure people know, that I'm a Balas Chuba and I met the Rebbe and he guided me every step of the way. And I decided I wanted to do everything. My Rebbe, my husband thought I was nuts and he did not go along with it at all, as you know. So the books I wrote actually, many things in them, but also the challenges I faced and how my dear Rebbe really helped me every step of it, like an Abba. I'll tell, I'll tell the Rebbe things I could tell no one else. He never ever judged me. He always guided me with love and he helped me. And I try and use the teachings and the guidance he gave me to help other women who have different challenges and Shalom Weiss. If anyone would have told me in those days when my husband did not want me to cover my hair, etc., etc., if anyone would have told me in those days that my husband is going to have a, grow a beard, and become a sadic that he is, I would not believe it. But again, you go over, you go over and above your challenges and you do what you're gonna do. So yes, one of the most, I don't want to put that aha moment, but really Hashem just opened my eyes to realize what the Rebbe was guiding me. Shalom Bais comes first. Yes, we have challenges. I'm sure very rarely do I see couples have nothing to complain about them. We shouldn't complain, but there are always challenges. We have to overcome that to make Shalom Bias our priority. Because we all want Mashiach, <laughs> who doesn't? When there's Shalom in the world, only when there's Shalom in the home. So make Shalom in the home the priority to bring Shalom in the world. Also, just one more thing I just wanted to mention. I remember, was I learning with? I was studying Torah, I was studying with my baby. And he opened my eyes when he was saying, explaining how Hashem is not a vengeful, angry, punishing God. He's pleading with us, please do these mitzvahs. So it's not as if he's like, if you don't do this, I'm going to punish you. He was, he's, Hashem is pleading with all of us 
to do the mitzvahs. And this really opened my heart to thinking this is how we should be. And we ask people around us to do mitzvahs, to do it in a beautiful way, not in a harsh way. I'm sure we Lubavitchers, we never ever do things in the chazur, in an angry way or threatening way, but with love. And I know, I know for a fact that anytime I have to speak anywhere, I will say, Hashem tiftach, because it's all for Hashem. Just share this little thing with you before I continue. Today I did a, a really a very, very um, unusual um, speech. I was asked by people in rabbis in Iran, today's Iran, would I please come and speak in Farsi to the literally millions of people all over the world who speak Farsi and don't speak English? And it's not my first language, but how can, how can I say no? We have to spread, spread the wellsprings. And it was so funny because although I was nervous and tense to do this, the rabbi that I had over there who was accompanying the rabbi in Iran was a rabbi, Persian rabbi from um, California. I'm just sharing this because it happened. And he came on and he says, Mrs. Carmeli came to California and she did the Shabbaton and the, I'll never forget that because I, I didn't get a chance to eat one scrap of food that Shabbaton because of people coming asking me things they were hungry and thirsty to learn. So he just mentioned this. I'm just repeating what he said. I know I'm saying this. He said, um, I don't even remember it. He said, one woman came up to Mrs. Carmeli and said, I'm not, I'm not getting pregnant. I want to have a child. And my doctors told me I have to do surgery. So I just said in my naivete, well, no, I really believe it. I said, you know what? Don't do it right now. Come and learn. Come and learn Taras Mishpacha with me, because Rebbe told me to teach her, and see what happened. She says, no, but the, the doctors said, I'm not going to get pregnant. I said, look, try. Keep mikvah. If it doesn't work, you can do your surgery. Ruch it, it worked. And she had... Uh, she had children after that. The reason I'm mentioning this because after the rabbi said this, it was easy for me to speak because I thought, oh, I'm validated, I can say so. But I'm trying to say, even now, all over the world, people, as it says in the prophet Amos, but now Amos says, Hine yamin ba'im, there's going to be days to come that people, there's going to be hunger and thirst, not for food and water, hunger and thirst for Hashem's word. And I see even in Iran, in Iran, they were like, they're, they're, they're ready and they're hungry and thirsty to learn more and more. So I just wanted to share that with you. I got some phone calls from Shiraz and Tehran asking me questions. So just want to wish on everybody, we should have really the Gula Shema should have a mamish now. Mamish now before the night is ending. We should all bring it by bringing Shalom in our home or be Shalom in the world. And thank you so, so very much for having me here. Thank you so much, everybody, and Hak Sameach, Hagagula. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. That was amazing. We're so lucky to have you here tonight. Thank you. Lucky to be here. Thank you. Do you want, do you want to tell us about your book, maybe? I, I have one of your books. Sure. I have two books. One is called Words to Hear with Your Heart, and one is Stories to Hear with Your Heart. Why did I name it this? Because when I was by Yechidus, by the Rebbe, years ago, in my son's bar mitzvah, it was like 40 years ago, um, the Rebbe gave us, it was myself, my husband, my children, and it was a private, and the Rebbe gave us a bracha, and then he turned around and said, it became very serious, and he said the following. I still have these words in my heart. He said, you have to go and bring people back to Hashem. 
If you do this, you're standing in God's place. And if you do Hashem's work, he'll help you with your work and he'll give you riches more than you dreamed possible. Then the Rebbe said, did you understand what I said? With his piercing blue eyes piercing into my soul. So obviously I started to stutter. Um, um, so the Rebbe said, I'll repeat it again. So word by word, he repeated everything. And when he finished, he said, I hope you heard my words with your heart. That's why the book called Words to Hear God and Stories to Be Heard. I wrote about the two miracles I saw the 15 years I was close to the Rebbe. And of course I changed the names, but this book is really hopefully to help people to see the importance of Shalom Bayes and Taras Mishpacha and the true stories that the Rebbe guided me. Um, so I just wanted to share that with you. And I hope if anybody would like my books, just call me or text me. I'll be happy to uh, share them with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Your books are amazing. And they're also sold on Amazon. And okay. are you sure? Yeah, I saw I saw one of them on Amazon a while back, but I don't know if they're still sold there. But I did see when we did the class on Tarat Mishpacha. Um, just moving forward, I'm going to throw in a small tip. We will have Tarat Mishpacha um, class with uh, Sarah Carmeli and Sterney Sandhouse and Dini Greenberg coming up in the next few weeks. So we're going to let you know about that. Um, our next speaker is Zohar Sassoon, and she is amazing. She's a very good friend. I met her um, through Chaya, uh, who we used to run together, the, the other Zoom that Chaya runs on Wednesdays. And Zohar runs the uh, Jewish Woman Influencers in Crown Heights. And she does amazing work giving us all the information we need to get educated, to know what's going on every single day. And um, Zohar, I'm going to give you the floor so you could tell us a little bit about what you do. And share with us a beautiful turning point story about your own life. Thank you very much, Shelly. <clears throat> um, of course, when Shelly asked me to speak, who can say no to Shelly? Everybody loves Shelly and happy birthday, uh, Shelly, tonight. So nice, I didn't know it's your Rebbiton's birthday too, wow. And um, I also decided that I must speak tonight because I have a miracle that happened in these days, your base of Gimel Tamas, and it's a mitzvah to publicize a miracle that you experienced. So actually, um, my miracle story began the year before we experienced the miracle, this open miracle. A year before, I was living in Florida. I was a young mother, had three young boys. We had recently bought a house. <clears throat> and everything was going well, Baruch Hashem. But then the unthinkable happened. Our almost two-year-old slipped away from us and um, went into the pool and unfortunately did not survive that. And um, we somehow, together with the help of our mashpiyim, my husband and mine, um, and this is very much a story of how um, a mashpiyah is, I believe, is the biggest gift that the Rebbe gave us. Um, with their help, we decided we're going to defeat our darkness, we're going to have more children right away with Hashem's help, and we're going to bring more light into the world. And Baruch Hashem, we right away, you know, became pregnant again, and things were going fine until... One day when it wasn't going fine, it was the day was Yudalif Nisan actually. And um, I was feeling very, very ill. I called the doctor. He's like, well, it's normal during pregnancy. But I'm like, no, something is wrong. Come in for an ultrasound. And I see that they're all very worried. And um, 
Then they tell us, okay, we need to speak to you, to your family, to everybody together. What's the story? The story is, is that the baby's left heart, left side of his heart didn't form. It's called hypoplastic left heart. We should never know of it. And a person can survive like that. And as the doctor informed us, my father was there also with me and my husband. Now we were in shock because we thought we already paid our dues with the baby who the last year. We thought you can't have another problem like this, such a tragedy. Um, but the doctor told us as soon as the baby's born, this was in Mount Sinai in Miami, we're going to take him, we're going to operate on him. My father, the father, just a minute, just a minute. First of all, in Mount Sinai in Miami, what's your success rate with this, you know, high risk operation? And she said, she hemmed and she hoed 20%, 20% survival rate. So my father said, thank you very much. We are going to get a second opinion. And he turned to us, as you know, the Rebbe always said, two opinions. Um, okay, and we left her. And before going home to my parents' house in Miami, my husband told me, I wanna go speak to my Rav, to Rabbi Shapiro in Miami, just to understand what's going on, to anchor ourselves. And um, he went and Rabbi Shapiro, um, was obviously very uh, with us, very, I don't want him to say too many sad things. It's a happy day today, it's a yantif, but he was very empathetic. And um, he just mentioned to my husband, um, you know, it's interesting that you say that the left heart was missing. We know in Tanya that the Nefesh of Bahamis is in the left side of the heart. And look, this sad, it doesn't even have a left side of his heart. And that was a little comforting. And then his wife said, you know, the strangest thing, we have a very good friend who's a pediatric cardiologist, a specialist that we met not long ago. And I was always hoping that we shouldn't need him, but he's in Long Island and he's the top. And I'm going to call him for you. And she did. And he, because he knows her, he made arrangements for us. And we flew to New York right after Pesach. And he helped us and we got into Columbia. We got an appointment, Columbia Presbyterian with a top doctor. People came from all over the world to try to save this baby's life as soon as he's born. The baby's born, he has the operation. Unfortunately, even though the success rate was 80% in New York, the, the operation was not a success and the baby was suffering terribly. And the long stitches up and down his chest and, and not breathing well something wasn't right. Then the cardiologist, a very good person, a Jew who actually took over his care, his name was Soloveitchik actually, he told us he's forming a clot. So all this fluid is building up and building up and the body can't process it. They had to put in tubes to take out all this fluid in the baby's body. He's getting all swollen and, and he couldn't sleep. He was suffering ter terribly. Anyways, it was at this time when I realized like, you know, this is like, you know, incredible challenges we're going through. And I remember being in my sister's house because we were staying by her when we came to New York and looking at the Rebbe's picture and saying, Rebbe, you have to help us. You have to help us here. What are we gonna do? And then this strange thought came into my mind. And I said to myself, you know, here you are going to the Rebbe as if you're such a chassid. You think you're a chassid. Who says the Rebbe even knows who you are? It was like a, a thought of the Eight Sahara, you know, like the suffix in your head. Who says even your parents were in Siberia? You did anything for the Rebbe ever? Who says he even knows, knows about you? I said, okay, who knows? So I have a chef. <laughs> in my naivety, I said, okay, you always have a chef. 
but I'm davening and davening to Hashem and also not feeling any kind of response, not feeling any kind of hope. Not, and I'm really starting to get nervous. And I remember one day, it was a travel to the Columbia Presbyterian from Crown Heights. It's at least an hour just to get there, an hour to be there, an hour to come back to my little kids coming home from day camp, from all our day camp. And I remember one day standing by the subway and again, these foreign thoughts coming to my head and these doubts. And I'm saying to myself, you're davening to Hashem. You're not getting any response. The baby's not getting any better. It's getting worse, actually. Who says Hashem is even listening to you? Maybe he got sick of you. So many problems, one person, there's other people in the world. And that was a very, very scary thought to me. Hashem? Hashem? How could you live without Hashem? That was like impossible. And I thought, and I said to myself, that is the scariest thought. And you know what? I'm very upset, actually. I'm very angry, actually. Not, not just hurt and feel betrayed, but I'm feeling very angry right now. I was there for you, Hashem, when the first baby passed away, right? I didn't give up on you. And now when I need you the most, no response? Am I talking to the wall when I'm davening to you? And that's when I said, you know, Hashem, you're going to have to come through for me. I'm telling you now, <laughs> I was very upset. I was talking from the heart, you know, and I said, you do miracles every day for people. I'm not telling you, you have to save the baby. I'm not telling you what you have to do, but you're going to have to show me a sign. If you want me to be in this relationship, Going forward, I'm telling you, you're going to have to show me a clear sign that you're here. At least I need to know that you're here with me. So um, didn't get better right away because the next day, I believe it was the next day, it was a Friday. It was Erev Gimel Tamas. So my story, my miracle story happened between Gimel and Yud Gimel Tamas. So it was Erev Gimel Tamas, a Friday. I get to the hospital and the doctor, the cardiologist Soloveitchik, they call him Soloveitchik, he tells me, Mrs. Hassan, you're gonna have to make a decision. I was all of 25 years old. You're gonna have to make a decision. What's the decision? The, it's getting so bad with this clot that we're gonna try a, um, a kind of operation to kind of explode the clot inside of his artery. And it might kill him though. But to leave him is also, he won't last too long. So you need to let me know by Monday if you want us to do this immediate emergency operation. So that was like, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I, and I went home and I said, I'm not doing this alone. Hashem, Rebbe, you're gonna have to come through over here. There's no way I can make this decision. And it was Friday night, everybody was sleeping. I got up three o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep anyways, ever those nights, I was always in, you know, um, I got up, I took an igros from the shelf. I sat at the kitchen um, table right in front of the big picture of the Rebbe. And I said, um, okay, you're gonna have to tell me what to do. Operation, yes or no? It was a few years after Gimel Tamil. We weren't used to miracle igros stories that everybody experiences now, you know? I opened the igros with a big feel on my heart. I don't see anything on that page. I turn the page, all of a sudden I see on the next page, the, the date of the letter is Gimel Tamos. And the Rebbe writes a very short letter and he says, it has been found in certain instances 
that homeopathic compresses have dissolved clots. My eyes lit up. Here was some hope, some message from above, some guidance. I'm not alone. The Rebbe is with me. Hashem is with me. They're telling me something. I'm not going to take this anymore on my own shoulders. And I say, okay, we have Baruch Shem you did. Besides a mashpia, the Rebbe always said, a doctor who's a friend, Dr. Rosen, I'm going to go to him Sunday morning. And quickly, before Monday, he should tell me what to do. I went with the Igras, the Dr. Rosen. He opened, the, he saw what I opened to. And he said, he knew the whole story. The whole time I'm updating him and our mashpia and what's going on. And Dr. Rosen said, listen, this is very interesting. I want you to know that when we treated the Rebbe after the heart attack, he actually had a clot and we used the services of a homeopathic specialist in London. His name is Jeremy Shear, and it actually helped to dissolve the clot. I'm giving you the number of Jeremy Shear. It's not easy to get a hold of, but see what you could do. It was not easy to get a hold of. I spent the whole Sunday trying to get a hold of him. He had just come back from China from a tour. I was begging the receptionist, telling her it's life and death. Do me a favor, just ask him for me if he can't come to the phone. She was very kind and um, she gave me the name of some very simple $3 homeopathic pellets from Apple Drugs. And she said like this, he said, every two hours, apply it to the clot. If it's gonna help, you'll see immediate results. Yeah, around the clock to every two hours. Me and my husband grabbed the pellets. We had family Barksham watching our other children and we went to the hospital. Now, of course, you can't just bring your own medications into the hospital and do whatever you want. So it was, had to be kind of, you know, like clandestine, you know, like try to hide the pellets and try to put it on him. But the second we put it on his heart, the baby fell asleep, first of all. He was crying for like two weeks straight, not sleeping. So finally, he just, and all the nurses breathed a sigh of relief. Finally, he wasn't fussing and he fell asleep. So that was already good. Then they figured out what we're doing, but the physician said, it's fine. It's homeopathic, nothing's gonna happen. But we did not sleep for 10 days between Gimel Tamos and Yud Gimel Tamos, every two hours, we were in the hospital, went to the Bikar Chaylem apartment. Those people are tzaddikim. They have this apartment ready for you. We went to Shabbos. We put it on the baby every two hours. And what was happening was he was getting calmer and calmer. And the fluid that was being let out of these tubes was getting less and less. There was less and less fluid until the day of Yud Gimel Tamos was also just like now, just like this year, Monday, Tuesday. The, 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 the pipes that were put into him, these tubes, all of a sudden Yud Gimel Tamos popped out on their own. They just popped out of his body. The body rejected them. He didn't need it anymore. So... It was incredible. All the doctors came around to see the miracle. I remember an Indian doctor coming with all her students and she said, we never saw such a phenomenon. This is unusual, never happened. So I turned to her, I told her, this is what's called a miracle. And then I realized for myself that that miracle that we're diving for, we actually got our miracle and I felt safe again that Hashem is always with a Jew and the Rebbe. You can never, they can never leave you, ever. They're part of you, they're with you. And Baruch Hashem, we were able to see it. And I just wanna say that I have a friend in Lakewood who also lost a child around the same time as me and she wasn't able to handle it. One child, she was not able to handle it. And I understand her, she called me Zohar. How did you 
do it. And the first thing I thought of, I said, you know, I had the Rebbe's guidance and I had my mashpia. It's interesting because the baby, he got better at that point from the club, but other issues came up, other issues. And a couple months later, you know, again, it was very dangerous and everything. And, and I remember it was Arab Sukkis, I had Kovan and I said, the baby seems stable. I feel like I should maybe be with my kids at home for Sukkis, but should I be with the, who's gonna be with the baby in the hospital? Should I send a volunteer? And my Mashpia told me very wisely, Baruch Hashem, she told me, the baby needs you more, go to the hospital. And it was actually that morning I benched Lola and Esther because volunteers came to the hospital. I thank them till today, girls from Bruria in the Upper West Side. They came with Lola and Esther. I benched out loud near the baby, the bracha on Lola and Esther. And that night, the situation got out of control and he actually passed away. And um, I told my friend in Lakewood, I said to her, I had my mashpia, I had the Rebbe's guidance. And this, she really couldn't handle it. And she went after Derek and she left her family, her four kids and her husband. She went to Manhattan and she just, she couldn't handle it. So what I'm trying to say is with my story is, Baruch Shem, this miracle and we're here to tell the story. And if I came out a little bit still normal from all this, it's due to my mashpia. And I wish this gift, again, I want to say on everyone. The Rebbe gave us the nifta of mashpia. It's a lifesaver. And you don't have to have such terrible challenges and difficult challenges. The Rebbe says, actually, it is inconceivable to make any serious decision without the help of a third objective party. Any decision, any that's serious, you know, and, and, and you should always be in touch with your mashpia, not only when you have a crisis, oh, make this decision for me, you know, you have a relationship and when there's a decision to make, she helps you with it. You never have to be in doubt, never. You never have to say, I don't know what to do. You do know what to do. Speak to your mind. A good year based Tamos, and I wish you a gula, personal gula, and may we all, with all these amazing women in Crown Heights, they're just incredible. They're giving the Rebbe and the Rebbe so much nachas. I know, I feel it. And all over the world, all of our Chabad women are bringing Mashiach. And Shelly, thank you. You're showing us a great example. <laughs> but they're expressing to us how it was so beautiful that through their belief and through the Rebbe and through the teachings that we have with us, they were able to overcome many of these hardships. So thank you so much for sharing these moments. And now the next speaker actually just help us, helped us so we don't have any more limit and anybody could log in. So thank you, Michal, for helping me behind the scenes. And um, Michal Weiss is the co-founder of Living Hasidus. It's an organization for women. And she does amazing work for the young women in Crown Heights and even women that move out of Crown Heights. And I met her very recently, but we clicked right away and we've done some work together already. So it's amazing. So Michal, with no further ado, I'm giving you the floor. Thank you. I'm also running the back end of the Zoom. So give me one second to 
switch the okay hi everybody okay great um i hope everyone can hear me and i think shelly you're back on with the <laughs> with running the zoom um so first of all um zoom can be very like 2d so like everybody take a moment shake 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 <laughs> we're gonna make it a little bit um more exciting I want to, I want to first of all wish a happy birthday to Shelly, and it's really such a schos to be on here. And I want to thank all of our previous speakers; they were all incredible, and I, I really gained so much for from every single one of you. So just to give a little bit of background, I, <laughs> on our first date, my first date with my husband. One of the things that we discussed is how much we both dislike Crown Heights. We were at the time dating in Israel and it was just such a great thing. So I came home, I told my mashpia, we have so much in common. Oh my gosh, we both would never live in Crown Heights. It was just so wonderful. And moving forward, we ended up getting engaged. We got married that summer. And after Kylo, we were kind of trying to figure our way and we were trying to figure out what to do. One of the most important things we, we really cared about was shluchas. We were pretty gung-ho on it. Um, and we really, through different background, which I'm gonna discuss in a minute, I was very passionate about helping people and particularly campus. It was so up my alley, it was so great. Um, so we ended up in Crown Heights waiting, not waiting, proactively looking for our shlichus. We tried this one, we tried that one, we worked with this shliach and we worked with that shliach. And um, when I was pregnant with my first, it was very exciting. We had meetings with shluchim in Australia and it was just so thrilling and so exciting. And Baruch Hashem, we were set. We were gonna go to Australia. My husband's originally from Australia, so it was just so beautiful. Um, then things happened. Hashem had a different plan. The Rebbe had a different plan. And all of that fell apart basically right before we left. Um, and throughout that time period, I also started to see many of my friends most of them who I knew from seminary and they were living here in Crown Heights, doing their thing, doing the Shaduchim process. And many of them were falling through the cracks. They were not as inspired as they were before. They were not exactly so thrilled. They weren't so, they weren't so excited and re-entering the world after the bubble of seminary kind of popped that bubble pretty intensely. And I started to, to realize that if we're going to do something, if, if the next generation is getting married, we have to do something to help them and keep them inspired and keep them looking for the right type of lifetime, lifestyle and the right type of husband. And so it really started with my birthday for Rangan. So I'm doing this on Shelly's birthday for Rangan. But at my birthday for bringing that year, I brought in all of my friends. They came to my apartment and they said, guys, two things. Chassidus is real 
and it's livable and we have to live with it. It doesn't just stay in seminary. It doesn't just stay in the books in the Maimarim that we learned. We have to live with it. And number two, we have to stick together. We have to make a community and help each other and support each other. And through that, this year was born. It started as once a week. My for bringing that year was Thursday and I, I, push them and, sh- and and encourage them. And they're like, okay, okay, Michal, fine, you're right. If you make the share, we'll come. So it started as a once a week. And slowly but surely, things picked up. And now we are nine and a half years in. Baruch Hashem, it's our, our incredible, incredible shlichas. But I'm not, I don't want to get there yet. Let's just take a moment. Let's take a pause. So many times we sit at a Zoom and we listen, or even a regular for bringing, and we just listen to someone tell their inspiring story, which is very nice and very beautiful. But I wanna take a moment and turn it back to you. And if you want, you can turn on your camera. If you don't feel comfortable, that's also okay. But I wanna ask a bit of a rhetorical question. Raise your hand if you've ever felt that you don't really know what's the right clear path. What's my path forward? What am I needed for? What is, why did Hashem put me in the place where he put me at this point in time? So I'm sure this is, <laughs> I was going to say, this is rhetorical because I feel like the entire Zoom is raising their hand. We've all been there and done that. And it is a normal and sadly many times very frustrating part of life but we've all been there. And I'm sure most of you, if you'd be able to raise two hands, you would raise two hands. Um, and I think that's what my challenge and, and in a certain sense, a bit of the topic for tonight was a personal challenge and how have we come, come through it. So my story, I don't want you to just know my story and hear it and move on, but I want, I want to make it as our, as our organization is called Living Hasidus. So I want to make whatever I say very livable and very practical. So I want everyone to take a moment and think about yourselves at this point in time. Do you have clarity that you are where you're meant to be and that you're doing the things that you're meant to be doing and that you have clarity that this is your path forward? This is your personal shlichas that Hashem put you on, that the Rebbe put you on, he he plucked you and he placed you in this particular moment, in this particular community, in your particular life. Is this your, do you have clarity that this is the right place? And I won't ask you to raise your hand because that's a bit more personal. But if you do, call a kavod and um, a shout out to Zohar for speaking about a mashpia. A mashpia can be very helpful with this. But if you don't, just know that we've all been there. We've all done that. And we've all woken up, even, even after making an entire shlichas for yourself, there's days when I wake up and I say, what, what's my tafkid today? Rebbe, give me direction. Where do you want me today? And this is a huge part of it. And I think, I think I, as much as I came through and I got clarity at the time, and I'll tell you, I'll continue with my story so you get the the next piece of the story. But I will share that there are times when we still have to, we, we, we brace ourselves and we say, okay, I am where I am and I'm settled and I have my things and I have my schedule and I have my ongoings. But 
do I really feel clear about where I am and where I'm going? So I'll share that that Shluchas to Australia, back to the story, by Hashkacha Pratis fell through. And at the same time, living Hasidus wasn't yet called living Hasidus, but at that time, living Hasidus was picking up. And we didn't have clarity about it. We really wanted to not live in Crown Heights. This is, was not our cup of tea, and we really wanted out. And it's funny how some people have Mr. Snefesh by living in Timbuktu, and some people have Mr. Snefesh by living in Crown Heights. Um, so next Shluchas opportunity came, we applied, we tried, we tried, we tried, next thing fell through. Next one again, we tried and we tried and we tried, and the next one fell through. And at one point I was, living Hasidus was growing and flourishing, but I was not clear. And this is the part I want to share. Even when you feel like whatever you're working on, whatever you're growing, whatever you're spending your time watering and giving it sod and watching this plant come through. And sometimes you're not clear that this is your personal task. This is your personal place. So I went to the aisle and I wish I nowadays, I, I wish I had the clarity to write down, you know, which video or which of whatever was showing on the, on the, on the video, but I wrote to the Rebbe before going in and I, I, I said, Rebbe, please, we want to be your shluchim. We want to be your clear representatives wherever you want us. Please give us clarity of what we're meant to do. What do you want from us? And again, I don't have the, the exact video, but from my memory at that time, in the words in English on the bottom, because I definitely don't remember the Yiddish, the Rebbe's words were, your shlichus is exactly where you are. And that gave me chills. I said, oh no, we're staying here. <laughs> and once we embraced it, once we realized that there are lots of people making people from, but there aren't so many people catching them here in Crown Heights and keeping them and holding them and fostering them and caring for them and leading them on to the next step in their life. And we realized this is where the Rebbe wants us. So through that, we got our clarity. We are now living here proud and um, we are very happy. We love Crown Heights. It took some time, but we're still loving it. And we appreciate that sometimes our tafkid, our mission is right underneath our nose. It's just right there. Me, many times we think, oh, wow, this other big thing, this other great ginormous project. But I want everyone to take a moment back to your clarity question for yourself. Take a moment and think about it. Is it possible that the chesed, that the beauty that you're bringing into the world, world already, is it possible that that is exactly where the Rebbe needs you? That beautiful, incredible, amazing talent that you already have, or, or even that you don't even realize how incredible it is, but that gem inside of you, is it possible that it just needs a little 
caring and a little helping and a little love to bring it and to realize that this is your amazing, amazing shlichus. So I wanna take a moment and encourage everybody, always, 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 no matter where you are in your life, Hashem sent you exactly to the perfect place. Hashem sent you, even if that place is gonna change, even if for whatever reason in six months you move and then Hashem put you in that perfect place, exactly where you are in six months. But at this point in time, it is our job. It is our shlichus to look to the right of us, to look to the left of us, and to think, who around me needs a little help? What can I do for them? What can I do to improve my surrounding right now? And that can give you clarity about where, where you are and what you're meant to be doing and where the Rebbe needs you and exactly where Hashem put you. So I wanted, I wanted to share my personal struggle and the, the struggle that even now, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I say, wow, I've built this whole thing, but is this really where I'm meant to be? And I, I work through this myself. It, it's not a finished product. I am literally going through it right now. I'm so overwhelmed and so beyond over my head with everything that living chassidus requires from me. And I wonder, am I the right shlucha for it? And then again, I wake up in the same location every single day and the Rebbe hasn't sent me elsewhere. So therefore, this is my tafkid, my shluchas. And I want to bench every single one of you with clarity and success. And, and you should feel exactly where you are, exactly how you're meant to, what, how you're meant to bring out your potential in that place. So l'chaim and happy birthday to Shelly. And thank you everybody for joining. The mic is back to you. Michal, thank you. That was beautiful. So real and honest and engaging. And I would like you to share also your, how people can log into your classes. Can you put it on the notes, how they can like see what you post and your, your YouTube so they can maybe watch some of the, the things that you do because you really do amazing things. And I myself log in and listen. So I really urge everyone else to also check out Living Hasidus. It's beautiful. So Michal will share with us her information. So we are about to end and I don't think it will be fair to end if I don't say something small. So first of all, I want to say thank you for everyone. Thank you for putting yourself out there and sharing your stories and inspiring us. And I want to give everyone a blessing for bracha and atzlacha and health and everything that you need. And may we, we see Mashiach. Bezrat Hashem bimhera amenu. But I want to share with you one small thing. I'm not going to share. I have a lot of stories. And I think that I'm going to touch on something that everyone else said a little bit. I think especially, Michal, you kind of pointed to it. Sometimes the solution is in the problem. And many years ago, I can only say it today, maybe 15 years later, that the solution to some of the problems that I had were in the situation itself. And I didn't realize it because I didn't have the right tools. So many years ago when I had a coffee shop and I was about to close the coffee shop and I was about to get into $450,000 debt, there were a group of 20 Hasidim with Rabbi Gavrila Vichter from Crown Heights who helped me close down my, my store overnight. And it was an unbelievable moment because looking back, I had to be so strong and I didn't, I don't think I even had any of the of the experience or the strength that I have today, but it was such a difficult moment. I just, I was standing there and I was watching a place that took me two years to build, fundraise 
get money from everyone and, and try to and, and speak and convince and and I was just staring at it and I saw it being broken down in literally a few hours and all I could look back today is that the Rebbe was with me he sent me his Hasidim to help me and to tell me it's going to be okay you're not alone Chabad is with you but I didn't have any of the tools to understand it at that time and when the Rebbe when I asked in the Igris Rebbe, should I close the store? What should I do? And he was telling me, thank you so much for your work in, in Chinuch. Thank you for supporting Tomchei uh, Tmimim. And I didn't understand what he was talking about. But today, looking back many years later, I see that everything that happened to me was a process. Just like when Hashem came and took us out of Egypt. And we went out of Egypt. We were free but we didn't have the tools we didn't understand what was going on we were we were like we didn't appreciate that moment of redemption so that moment of my own redemption was that day that i closed the coffee shop but i didn't see it that way because i didn't understand it i only saw that moment and i was so sad and upset and mad with hashem how could you leave me but he didn't leave me he just started to teach me what I need to know. And sometimes when it's most painful and you're walking through that path and you're struggling with your relationship with Hashem and you're asking why and how, and that's how your relationship with Hashem becomes stronger. And as you go through the path of life and you make different choices and you fall and you get up and you fall and you get up, you realize that everything has a reason, everything has its place. And today looking forward 15 years later and looking at so many accomplishments that I myself don't feel I could do sometimes but because I know that there's something bigger behind me there's something pushing me there's the Rebbe's teachings there's Hashem there's all these things that randomly happen it can't be a consequence you know just because there's always a reason so we have to be patient, we have to be willing to struggle, we have to be willing to fall in order to find out where we really need to be. And achieving redemption is not, it's not easy. Nobody said it's gonna be easy. You really have to work hard. You really have to dig inside yourself and ask yourself, what am I good at? What am I here for? Why, why did Hashem bring me to this world? What, do, what can I contribute to this creation in order to bring everyone to a more peaceful place? What can I do for Hashem's child today? What can I do for my neighbor today? What can I do for my friend today? Maybe the whole reason that I came here was to just do one mitzvah we don't know we can't you know we can't um, decide what's right and wrong but we have to be willing to put ourselves on the line we have to be willing to experience pain in order to grow and I think that that's one thing that I learned and looking looking forward today I really really do see that every time you have a problem you must know that the solution is in the problem Hashem never gives you something that you cannot handle that he didn't create the solution for it's right in front of you and all you have to do is really really search and know that you're not alone we're here together we're here as a team and Hashem sends people to help us and and messages and you really have to open your eyes and see it and I know because I've been through it. I've been really, I feel like I went through such a booth camp. And even on good days, I went home crying sometimes because you sometimes still ask yourself, is this what I'm supposed to do? Why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? But then when you look 
a few years later, you realize how much you accomplished, how much you do, and how much Hashem needs you. And you realize that every moment in life is important. So today, um, coming into Yudbet Tammuz, Yudgimel Tammuz, the time that we're all redeemed from all our Meitzarim, I really urge you to look inside yourself and see where you could put yourself, move forward, do something that requires you to work a little bit, that requires to give from inside yourself, even if it hurts a little, because you'll realize how strong you are. I didn't realize how strong I am until I lost everything I had, till the last dollar, till the last sense of, of, of dignity, till the last sense of, of, of everything. And when I had nothing, that's when I realized that I'm so much stronger than I gave credit to myself. And when I saw that, that's when I was really able to grow. And, and it's not over. It doesn't mean that if you went through one hurdle, you're done. It's still a struggle. But when you have faith and when you see Hashem in your life and when you see how much messages and guidance the Rebbe can give you when you tap to his, to his teachings, you realize how much you have going for you, how many tools, how many weapons Hashem gave us in this world to be able to fight this battle. So for everyone, I wish us full redemption tonight, full redemption this year, and Bezrat Hashem, may, may we all see better days. And I want to share a Rebbe video, so I'm going to log myself off from one of the screens, and we are going to watch a video. It's about 11 minutes. If you're tired and don't want to see it, it's okay. We're going to record it, and we will share it with everyone. Thank you, everyone, for logging in today. We appreciate it so much. It's been beautiful, and I just can't believe we have 121 ladies. We had 133. This is one of the biggest classes I've seen in a long time. So thank you, everyone, for taking your time. This is really beautiful. So give me a moment, and I will share the screen. Das Hayel is a dosayen miyuchot, the Kesher to Yini von Akotsis Amayonis Futso, or does Hater the Horn of Arbund Metalish Bixapurcidis, or does her the Sefer Atanio? The Rebbe explained the union of Akotsis Amayonis Futso brings the goal. 
So he wants to print Tanya's in every country. The birthday of the Bashemtev and the Altarebbe. And he, um, he gave the general um, plan of how he wants uh, these signs printed. The response to that call was incredible. And at a certain point, the Rebbe said to print Tanya's in every city where there are Jews living, even one Jew. When you print a Tanya in a certain city, you're making the chutzah itself, the Mayan. People kept calling from all over the world. Everyone was so enthusiastic and so uh, inspired to print Tanya's. I wrote to the Rebbe, I'm going now to Africa, to three countries, Kenya, Tanzania, and Rhodesia. Rabbi Groner met me with Rabbi Jacobson, who took care of the technical issues of how to, when to, how to print Tanya's. So he said, take with negatives, and when you get to those countries, you'll make plates to actually do the printing. People who were asking about traveling uh, for business or for whatever they might be going, they'll be asked people to make a detour, to make a, a stop and print a tanya. It was a, a form of shlichus for a businessman. Whoever told me later, when we go to Asia, if the State Department agrees, go to China, print tanyas there three in China and three in Africa and one in Sri Lanka. The Rebbe told me to send reports. I used to send a duch. The Rebbe used to answer the duchs. Tach, tach, yashukoyach. After the peace settlement with Egypt, I wrote to the Rebbe that there's now an Egyptian council in Iran. Is it the right thing? The Rebbe feels right that I should go to him? and tried to get some permission to print a Tanya in Egypt. Within minutes, came out an answer. Two months later, I wrote to the Rebbe on Thursday that we're leaving after Shabbos. Friday morning, I got a telephone. Rabbi Gronin said I was just by the Rebbe, and he said he should print 2,000 of each one. I said to Rabbi Groner, what am I supposed to do? You know, we're leaving on Sunday, and I don't, I don't have, I prepared money because I knew I had responsibility, but I don't have the money for 2,000. What I print? They used to print them 100 in each place. So he went back into the Rebbe, 
And the Rebbe told him that would pay for the whole trip. I became very excited about printing Tanya's. We have addresses of Jews in 226 cities. And there's much more probably we don't know. So I figured this is a beautiful project. I traveled to New York to tell the rapper personally. He says, how many are you going to print? So I said quickly, 80, I was ready for that. I said, 83, because the rabbi was saying, pay gimel. So he smiled and said, If you make more, nobody will be angry. So I said, 100. So he gave a big smile. And the next morning, the Bogron gave me $2,000 from the Friedrich Rebbe's money yet. And he said, $20 for every city. So I quickly organized a team. We rented two vans, and we put a little printing press in every one of the two vans, plus a technician to just come goes wrong on the way. We put in a rabbi in each van, and a few barkham to help. And they went all over Brazil, only small towns, and in 33 days, they printed 100 tanyas. We went to the Rebbe, and it's the only time I taped the Rebbe in my life. <laughs> I met an Israeli engineer who just finished building the Brazilian base in Antarctica. Brazil is one of the 14 countries that has a base in Antarctica. I said to myself, this is, this is, I mean, this is it. I gave him the printing press and the films of the Tanya and the Tanya, and he printed the Tanya in Antarctica. I was out of my box. That Pesach had to be in New York, so I arrived in Pesach. There was Erev Pesach after Mincha. Imagine what's going on. By the Rebbe, he called me over. He called me over and in He says, "Doch nizeh kalt, ob dus guton gevarn zeh." The Cubans went into an island called Granada. They invaded it. The American forces went into Granada. My friend, Captain Goldstein, was asked to come to lead the Hanukkah service for the Jewish servicemen. The Rebbe told, uh, told him that he should print the Tanya there. I had plates with me to print the 200 tanyas. I bound up the tanyas. I gave all the tanyas to the Rebbe. 
the chief chaplain of the IDF, his name was Gadavon. He, I don't know, it was Nifta some years ago. He was by the Rebbe Fichis. And uh, he, on the Rebbe's desk was Aitanya. It was there on the Rebbe's desk. And um, <coughs> the, he asked the Rebbe where the Rebbe got it. The Rebbe smiled and the Rebbe told him, I also have a military. Some people ask, what's the union of printing in Tanya? How about printing uh, the basics of Judaism? And the Rebbe said, Tanya is ACS Aesam. Tanya goes to the Neshama. He'll have a Tanya, that's when he'll go back to Olive Bays and learn, and learn other things. This production is made possible Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Everyone, um, if anybody wants to say anything, you can unmute yourself. Um, I just want to end with saying that I chose this specific video because it talks about redemption and it also shows how the Rebbe took so much time and effort to reach every single Jewish person. And this is how the previous Rebbe devoted his life to Jewish education, devoted his whole being to make sure that we today have the, the systems, the educational systems that we have today. And the Rebbe continued on that work. And they were looking for every Jewish child, mother, person, elderly, that is missing something, that needs warmth. And this work was not easy work. Look to what kind of an extent they had to reach every place of the world 
it sounds easy. It's very hard work. So many things had to be put in place. And we should just take this moment to appreciate this hard work that the Rebbeim did to bring us to where we are today. So thank you, ladies. And I'm going to stop the recording if anybody wants to share or say anything. I think before you stop the recording, I just want to add a piece. I want to say thank you to Shelly. This was an incredible thing, yes. and it was all in your schools. And I want that to be on the recording. <laughs> You're amazing. We love you. And thank you so much for your amazing shluchas. I have to log now for it. <laughs>